Welcome! So this is super exciting, genuine, and we say exciting loads of times, but this is something which has been such a pleasure for us, an enlightening and awakening in every sense. This is the first episode in our community series, and obviously we've been synonymous with community. It's been something which we've been interested in for it's so long. It's something we started the Happy Pair first, that the tagline back six, nearly 17 years ago was health, happiness, and community. And we saw, you know, food is the entry point to building a community, to getting together, to celebrate life, and to kind of you know, have more fun and build more happiness. And community is something that, you know, modern day society tends to, you know, can often create isolation and, you know, can loneliness. And I think community is the antidote to that. Yeah, and this this, this is the first episode. So this episode, honestly, like we interviewed Helena Norberg Hodge. And wow, I, like I was blown away in so many sense. She's kicking it off because she's the epitome of an earth mother that has lived an incredible life, like really has in every sense. So where Helena really got into this kind of sense of localization, she spent time in a community in India in called Ladakh. Ladakh. Uh, and I thought one little story, which she didn't mention, which I'd love to tell on her behalf, was that when she first went to Ladakh and she was living there, she asked one young boy, can you show me where the poorest house is? And he kind of thought about it and he looked around the town for a bit and then he said, there are no poor houses. And then she remembered coming back eight years later after, you know, the, the, the country had opened up and there was, or, yeah, the country had opened up and there was more introduction of globalization and international trade. And she asked the same, she overheard someone asking the same boy, can you tell me, you know, where are the poor houses? And he said, we're all poor. We don't have much. Do you have anything to give me? And it just, it highlighted a total change of attitude that really symbolized the impact of globalization. Wow. Uh, but uh, Helena was incredible. She, we talked about the whole system really and why local is so important versus global, the current globalization economic system. Now they sound like huge topics, but she's so relatable and tangible. And it was an incredible conversation. And as we said, this is, this is the first episode, but we're going to tee up. We're going to whet your appetite to what's to come because like, Honestly, I'm, I can't wait to share this with the world and I hope you'll listen to it, all of them. <laughs> so we, we have in future episodes on this series, we have Bruce Parry. Bruce Parry is the epitome of the, like the adventurous, the, the explorer. He went and lived with 15 indigenous tribes to try to, 15 learn, different ones, different ones to learn about indigenous living and how we can apply that sense of community to modern day society. He is a legend. He is Fabulous. It was such an enjoyable conversation. Yeah. And he, everything he kind of learned from these, he's trying to apply in his own kind of social experiment, which he's not really talking about, but we kind of got little bits of it. Fascinating. Anyway, we talk with Dan Butner about the Blue Zones. He's the founder of the Blue Zones. We love Dan. This is the five areas in the world where there's the longest living people on the planet and also about the Blue Zones of happiness and about his projects with how he's applying this to cities and communities across the world now. We spoke about Rob Hopkins. That was one of my favorite. Rob what a dude. Yeah. Transition towns, all about practical application of things we can apply to our communities to create a more interactive, more engaged, more connected society. Yeah, beautiful. And, and we got a great more, laugh. We got more to come also as well that we're not going to tell you that yet. They're top we secret. Need, we need to leave a little bit of suspense. There's a cliffhanger. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, anyway. Anyway, this episode is with Alina. It's, I, I honestly hope it moves you the same way it moved us because we're about like flying in the clouds now after it. Yeah. So, so Brace yourself, enjoy it, and check Alina out. She's yeah, wonderful. together, let's build better communities. Welcome to the first episode. And let us know, as always, let us know on social, Instagram stories, tag us, we'll reshare. We want to get this word out there. There's beautiful people which we really want to amplify their messages here. So thank you. We really appreciate it. Enjoy. Okay, well, great. I'm so glad. It is good work we're doing. It is good work. 
and I just hope we can get it out. You know, yeah. it's just really hard to get this holistic, grounded message out. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of resistance. Because yeah. even I, re- I watched your, like we watched your Economics of Happiness movie, which was, you know, you put, it came out about 11 years ago. Yeah. And even since then, like, you know, you talked about so much hope and so much other stuff. And I'm kind of watching it now, 10 or 11 years later going, yeah, it's still in its infancy. Like it still hasn't really yeah. caught. It's even gone more yeah. the other way because we were just going yeah. for a walk there and we were discussing about like we're 41. And when we were young, when we were like 10 years old, there used to be a shop in the middle of our town, which was like a haberdashery where you'd buy sewing needles and you'd buy zips yeah. and you'd fix things. Right. And, and, and uh, like, it, it's just been in our lifetime, we've seen culture change just so much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think it has gone the other way. But why I still feel optimistic is that, you know, our bodies, our bodies and our deeper knowing keep taking people away from this commercial urban competition towards nature. And, you know, you can see it with people who can afford to do it. You know, all their holidays, everything is about going to more natural places. And it's just, to me, really about blindness, that too many of the activists and too many of the people who, who struggle to create healthy local food markets they're not aware of this bigger picture that we're trying to share. But I'm just hoping that if you can just get out, I think it will resonate with a lot of people. But do you know that Facebook shadow banned us so that after the economics of happiness, our following on Facebook, we just set up the Facebook after that because I'm not in, I'm not on the social media, I'm not on Facebook, but young people in our organization set that up. And it would go up sometimes by a thousand a day. And when we showed the film, including in Dublin, in London, in Toronto, in New York, San Francisco, it's all grassroots. But everywhere we did, we really had like just such an enthusiastic response. And the Facebook page went up, like I say, by a thousand a day. And then they stopped it. You know, it's just wow. stayed there for seven years. Is wow. it seven years, maybe six years, and I just stayed there down a bit up a bit it's called shadow banning so this is part of what we have to wake up to is that there is actually so much more happening around the world than we know but it's almost impossible to get the news out the big picture because even the social media are you know preventing this from getting out and then they have things like TED Talks that seem radical and they're not because they go along with a techno-economic globalizing trajectory. Yeah, yeah so, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it feels like it's uphill. Well, like it you, is uphill. But it's I, I feel... uphill I, in a way, but you see, it's not uphill in terms of... I don't know. I just see. It's kind of like up uphill on our way home because it's essentially like this is the only way to come home in a sense. Because yeah. the more I've listened to you over the last number of days, the more I've gone like, you know, like you're an incredible, like you are the epitome of an earth mother in a sense. That's yeah. like you, you've lived a life that's extremely diverse and this has been your life's work, really. And when I was trying to boil it down there, 
I was telling my daughter this morning over breakfast that oh, we're interviewing this incredible woman later. I'm so excited. And, and she was kind of asking, what's it about? And I was saying, essentially, it's about local economics. And she's like, and what's an economy, daddy? And we were trying to go about this. And it was kind of like, it was like, we just need to stop buying stuff from faraway countries and start. And I was trying to explain it. And it was, it was kind of interesting to see how complex the whole thing is. Yeah. You see, it's complex. And in a way, it's simple in that, you know, another way to explain to her, it's about coming back home to having more human, or maybe even human scale might be too difficult for her, to a walking distance future where most of what you need is in walking distance and where you know the people who are selling you what you need, you even know the farmers maybe who are producing your food and you're not on the phone talking to a robot and never getting a human voice. Um, yeah, it's uh, another way to tell a daughter maybe is that she lived in an ancient culture where people lived in a more simple way and they made a lot of stuff they needed and they, they were able to live in a way where there was no unemployment and there were basically there was no pollution as we know it. Yeah, you know. I think that's, I think, I think that's a lovely way. I, I really think that's he, Can I say one, one last thing? Sorry. And then. Sure. No, you go away. Sorry, you go ahead. I, I was just wondering, like, I, I, f- I find your story of Ladakh phenomenal. I'm just wondering, could you talk briefly about that? Because I thought that really metaphor, it was a wonderful metaphor for what's happening. And I know wonderful probably isn't the best word, given that there's been such a shift. But I wonder if you could talk about that. Sure, sure. Yeah, I always have to, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, so my, everything that I'm about, you know, came from Ladakh in a way. Uh, because I ended up in this part of Tibet that belonged politically to India, that is high up on the Tibetan plateau, and the Dalai Lama was the spiritual head. And in this part of Tibet, people had been sealed off from the modern world. No one had been allowed to go there because this part of Tibet belonged to India, and they had all the borders were disputed with China and with Pakistan. And so they were very worried about spying and cross-border stuff, and they wouldn't allow people to go there. And then when they threw it open to tourism in 1975, I came out as one of the first outsiders, and I was coming with a film team. I was a linguist. I was only going to be there for six weeks. But I met the most radiantly happy and the healthiest people I had ever met. And I, well, I fell in love with the people. And by the time the filming was finished, I was already working on the language. I had learned to speak quite a lot of it. And at first I was going to do a PhD on the language and I helped to do a sort of a dictionary, a dictionary an English Ladakhi dictionary. And, and I went through the whole region. It's quite a big region, about the size of Austria, with about 100 villages spread in this beautiful, beautiful Tibetan landscape. And I was going collecting folk stories as part of my research. And everywhere I went, people just told me they, they, well, there was no unemployment, there was no poverty, no one had known hunger. I can't testify to what it might have been like 100 years earlier, except I can tell you 
that there were missionaries who had come up a hundred years earlier, two hundred years earlier, and they had come out, you know, really certain that they had to improve the Ladakhi worldview. And all of them that I've come across testify to what I say, which is they had never met people who were happier, who were more honest, such a high status of women. So they were glowing in their praise of the people. They were still trying to convert them, but they didn't succeed very much. So by the time I came in the modern era, there were a few families who had become, uh, who were orphans, who had become Christian. And so there were a few Christian families, but the majority in the region where I worked were Buddhists, but there were also Muslims who had lived there for 500 years. And they had coexisted peacefully for 500 years. But I then became witness to what the modern economy does to people. And it really does what the global economy has always done, which is to conquer and invade local economies. So really the economic system, you know, what's called the capitalist system. But I think I'm coming at it from a broader perspective than most of the critique of capitalism. And so what that economic system has done is to essentially force people away from the land, which happened through enclosures in Europe. And it happened through slavery, through forced slavery and genocide in the early stages of this economy. And once you had set up this system where you had slavery and enclosures, you had this perfect power for global traders and I saw that in the modern era, this is the problem, is that this continued support for and handing over power to global traders is our biggest problem. And solving that, in fact, is a lot easier than people think. Easier in the sense that to start supporting local economies and supporting shorter distances between production and consumption in most areas, especially food. But you know, there are things like herbs that could happily be dried and transported across the world. And that were even for thousands of years. So it's not like everything needs to come from local, you know, and what is local is all relative. But anyway, um, I saw this destruction of the local economy. I saw food coming in, you know, like things like butter, which is also very prized and important product in Tibet. Suddenly there's butter coming and that's been transported for weeks and it sells for half the price of local butter. So this opened my eyes to what I'm talking about. The need to strengthen local economies and with that local community and massively reducing pollution of all kinds. Yeah. And it's it's so challenging because even nowadays, like we have a local business, which we've had for 17 years. So where we very much understand like, OK, local, we want people to support local. But then I see it myself that sometimes it's a lot easier to buy a book on Amazon instead of going to the bookshop because it's cheaper and I don't even have to go down to the bookshop. And like when those things are like that, I'm kind of going, how the heck are we going to change as a society? Because in some ways it's so much, you know, it's it's so addictive, or so habitual at this stage. Well, I haven't seen the, I, I must get a hold, apparently there's a documentary that 
looks at Uber and exposes Uber for being a pretty nasty global takeover in a very shoddy, almost criminal way, I think we'll find before long that people will be rejecting Amazon and start understanding that when global businesses have so much power, it's against the interest of majority of humanity. And it's incredibly energy intensive, incredibly polluting. So I still believe before I die that I will see a big change there. Because I was trying to warn about being so dependent on the internet and so on back in the 80s and the 70s even. And it was very difficult. I would say in many ways, the main reason we're in such a mess today is that the internet and the globalizing tendencies that it offered for global banks and finance, for global media, for global businesses of other kinds, is the main reason why we're in so much trouble now. Because back in the 60s and 70s, people were very clear about wanting to go back to the land, wanting to have more community. There was already a sense that this push into the cities, using fossil fuels for large-scale, toxic, unproductive agriculture. The big monocultures are much less productive than small diversified farms. But anyway, this push was, was beginning to be rejected. And then the internet was sold as a way to allow people to live in a smaller village or town, it was sold as a tool of decentralization. But I think we're beginning to wake up to the fact that it's actually vastly, vastly more centralizing than decentralizing. And it's helped, you know, the few to get richer and richer and richer and the majority to get poorer and poorer. And by the way, it's important that we stress that the average middle class person even upper middle class person, even the CEOs of the giant corporations, everybody is being pushed to run faster and faster, compete harder and harder, and there are these mergers, and when whether two councils merge or two hospitals merge or two corporations merge, there's one CEO instead of two. So it's a rat race where everybody is afraid of losing their job. And it's crazy. It's just absolutely mad. But very few people are stepping back and looking at that system holistically. Um, at the grassroots, people have generally been more focused on defending and protecting may maybe their particular shop or a park or you know whatever it might be, the trees, the dolphins. But they haven't been stepping back to look at that global system. And the people who are studying the global system are doing it essentially for profit motives. And they're doing it from the point of view of very, very, very powerful, well-funded corporations. And most of them are not evil people. They're just there making sure that they're going to stay on top and that they're not going to lose their job. And they're pushing in a in a very dangerous direction. And and how do we how do we turn it around? Because, like you know, I know the answer is local economies and local systems and 
local food and like that all sounds like the answer but when I'm sitting here now and I've got a phone in front of me with social media and I can and, I, and I'm kind of going how do we how do we turn like you know we've all watched so many movies where it's kind of you know it reaches a crescendo and then the heroes solve it all and I'm kind of going how the heck are we going to turn this one around you know in, in this movie that we're all living in called life well I the way I see it is that number one we need to realize, like I just said, that very few people who are still working hard to make the world a better place, you know, who really love nature, they don't want to see the cruelty to animals, they don't want to see the extinction of species, they don't want to see the Amazon cut down, they want to struggle for rights, they don't want to see people marginalized and treated like dirt because they're a different skin color. They don't want indigenous people treated as inferior. They don't want women treated as inferior. They, they resent this widening gap between rich and poor. Now, I believe, and I'm seeing it happen, that they will realize that for all of those reasons, they need to focus on an economic shift. But that hasn't quite happened yet on a large enough scale. But for instance, Naomi Klein, who is one of the leading climate activists, has recently come around to this absolutely clear now. We have to shift the economy. And we can't ignore the fact that when people are really squeezed economically, when they're struggling to pay their mortgage, they are very vulnerable to leaders who stand up and say, we're going to grow the economy for you. We're going to make your country great. We're going to grow it. Forget about all these ridiculous ideas like the Amazon is important or climate is important. So once we have a more connected view, so once we have at that level of these hundreds of millions of people, hundreds of millions, who are either trying to protect life in one form or trying to regain a better balance with life, we're trying to regain a better balance between rich and poor and the powerful and the less powerful. Once they see that there's this connected picture and they come together to share that, to build up a movement that will be bigger than any movement has ever been, because we have never had movements built around an issue that threatens everybody's health, everybody's rights. So there is the potential for this movement that will be bigger than, than anything we've ever seen. But what's required for it is the big picture. So the big picture, which looks at the big global system, and I say economic system, but it's, it's an economic system that has come to shape our science and technology, our education, our media, our government. So it's a really monstrous system. You know, it's a sort of, it's a giant interlinked corporate and banking system where even inside those banks, people are not really looking at the big picture. I've spoken to them. I've spoken to CEOs. I've spoken to Nobel Prize winning economists and in the World Bank and at the IMF and recently at the Brussels Economic Forum. And honestly to God, they are not being forced to look at this big system honestly and holistically and to see how damaging it is and how it is the reason why in every single country the gap between rich and poor is growing in such an obscene way and why we have this tragic extinction of species, increase in CO2 emissions, 
when actually it's so anyway i can go on and on but i just want to say that i really think when the movements as they're beginning to do start linking into new economy movements and when they recognize that right under our noses are the smaller scale localized ways of doing things that have been there before and are still exist in many places and are being rebuilt, especially in the industrialized world. Right there is the evidence, the facts, and a movement that's growing. So it's not just theory that we work better when we human beings reduce our economic scale to fit inside our cultural, democratic, social, and ecological realities. So this is where the decentralization becomes so important. And so what we need is people learn from these small scale things that are happening and they demand policy change to support that. Now what that would mean is that we no longer would allow our governments to subsidize global trade and global corporations, synthetic food instead of real food. We would make it very clear that they need to shift subsidies immediately with the goal of shortening the distance between farmers and consumers, with the goal of encouraging diversified production for local and national needs instead of monocultures for export. Just that alone, if that happened around the world, almost everything else would change. So there are certain key levers that with shift in policy could like in a very, very short period, demonstrate the multiple benefits. And of course, it would take a while to get, you know, everything into place, but it's it, the evidence and the benefits would be seen very rapidly. I love your... Very uh, long answers, sorry. Yeah, yeah, that, no, yeah, no, but that was great. I, I, I appreciate the sense of that you see the scale of the possibility for hope, that it's bigger than any movement. That really gives me a sense of I can feel the you know, the hairs in the back of my neck stand up, which is wonderful. I'm really grateful Good. for that. And then, you know, often, like there you said, a few, there's a few small things that can really have a massive effect. And I've heard you say that at the center of any economy is food. And I think yeah. you'd said there, the more we can shorten the distance between the farmer and the table, that that's of paramount importance. Because yeah. you, you, you spoke even with Ladakh, the sense of that there was butter being made locally and yet, there's butter being imported and traveling for days to get there being sold at half the price due to subsidies. So uh, yeah. I, I wonder if you could talk about the importance of food at the center of an economy and how we can all and anyone listening could try to apply that to try to, you know, have some positive impact. Yeah, I really hope that people will also look at this short little film we made. It's just a three minute, you know, low budget thing. But it, I think because so few people have stepped back to look at the global food system and contrasted it with, with the diversity of local food systems, we don't have the clarity about the multiple benefits of shortening those distances. So one of the key things to realize is that when farmers are selling to distant, large-scale markets, the pressure is towards monoculture bigger and bigger monocultures. And that's what our governments have been subsidizing for a long time. And the subsidies particularly grew after the Second World War 
with the chemicals from the war machine, by the way, and the fossil fuels. So fossil fuels were used as fertilizers and machinery, and then the pesticides, herbicides, fungicides, also coming from the petrochemical industry. And they drove people off the land and then used lots of fossil fuels to drive people into high-rise apartments and, and where they had no interdependence with each other. So in my native country of Sweden, for instance, which was considered a great success, actually people were lonely, isolated, and suffering from depression, alcoholism. This is so unnatural. You know, we evolved closer to the land. We evolved using our hands more. We evolved being interdependent with people, people who we knew. So with these fossil, fossil fuel subsidies, what was happening all the time was that the farm was separated from the table further and further. So already in the 70s, when I came back from Ladakh and I'd seen these crazy things of subsidized butter and other things coming into Ladakh, destroying the local market, I was sort of looking around Sweden and I realized that at that time, the biggest food company was Philip Morris. Philip Morris had bought Kraft, and that was apparently the biggest food company in Sweden. And at that time, in the mid-70s, they were sending potatoes by road to Italy to be washed and put in plastic bags and then sent back again by road. Now, I had my eyes open to all this. I was invited to Mongolia. I was invited to meet with the Maasai in Kenya because I had also been talking about these issues and there, were a lot, there was a lot of interest from a lot of different cultures. So when I go to Mongolia, I find you know, they have 20 million milk producing animals in all the yurts. You have more cream and dairy than you could ever want. In Ulaanbaatar, you can't even find Mongolian products. It's from Germany. And I get served water bottled by Coca-Cola in Hong Kong, in Mongolia, when I'm there at a conference trying to talk about learning from Ladakh. In Kenya, I find that butter from Holland is cheaper than Kenyan butter. And then I happened to see that in, in Devon, where we lived, which is very famous for its good milk and its cows. And the local butter costs three times as much as butter from New Zealand. So, and then I start realizing and studying that this insanity is going on all over the world. And now food is being flown to be processed. It's not going by road. Apples are flown from the UK to South Africa to be washed. And fish is flown from Norway to China to be deboned. It's flown from scallops from Australia to China to be cracked open and flown back again. And then, you know, madness, madness. And the worst of all is that here we have all these climate activists who don't even know about this. They don't realize that one of the easiest, most systemic way of reducing climate emissions would be to focus on food. What happens when you shorten the distance, when you start setting up a local farmer's market, or you set up a producer-consumer co-op and start getting the collaboration, the shorter distances mean that the market wants diversity. They actually have a market pressure. We can still use money. We can still even have some interest. 
you can have some people working harder, you know, earning more money. But the whole question is keeping business at a scale where people can see what's going on and there's some knowledge, some chain of human connection. So we're not being dominated by large institutions that confuse and end up essentially essentially preventing us from seeing what's actually going on. So remember that when it comes to farming, forestry, and fishery, the smaller the better, because the smaller linked to smaller markets are not only able to diversify, but are pressured to diversify. So you have a market encouraging more ecological production. This is the key principle of all this. And, and it's so wonderful to know that when you have small fishing boats with fishermen who can see the fish and throw back fish that are too small instead of giant trawler ships, that you know their nets hold the whole jumbo jet worth of fish. And as you know, what gets caught that is allowed to die, tiniest little fish, you know, it's just. And then you have fish farms that are doing the same thing in the water as we're doing on the land. Toxic pollution, toxic food. So on the other side, the small scale, we have smaller scale fisheries, we have smaller scale diversified forestry also. And one of the exciting things too is agroecology and agroforestry. And all that is about diversification linked to smaller scale, shorter distances, more eyes per acre, more eyes and hands per acre. That's a I good like analogy. That. Like what, what, something which just came to me there when you were talking is that like you were talking about like current, current food systems is monoculture based where you're forced into yeah. specification. And it's almost like I was thinking there because I actually studied economics and it was, I remember there was the macro and the micro. And I was just thinking there in terms of like our current culture at large is very monocultured across the world. Like it's very, you know, I walked in the, the main street in any city and there tends to be quite similar type stores. There's your H&M's, there's your Zara's, there's your McDonald's, there's your Burger King. And you might know which city you're in because they all seem the same. And then I think of food system, our food is monocultured as well. And then I think of like our, our planet and the diversity of our at nature is becoming more monoculture as well. And you look at the gut microbiome, which is like, you know, it's the, the root of nature within ourselves is getting simpler and simpler and there's more autoimmune. And it seems like the macro and the micro are completely reflecting one another in so many different ways, like mirroring one another. And it's not until I don't know where the best levers are, like food sounds like a really great point, but it seems like once we start shifting as individuals and I, I don't know I, I didn't well, have a question in it, it it's, well it's almost like I think as we start to eat better our microbiome becomes more diverse and as we become more diverse and accepting of different microbacteria in our own system it's almost like we start doing that in a macro perspective possibly maybe. nice one Steve thanks <laughs> <laughs> well you see I think if you start really looking at the benefits of the local food stuff Absolutely. I mean, you know, remember again with that major pressure from the market towards diversity. If you listen to Zach Bush and people, you'll hear that that diversity is essential for restoring the health of the soil and that 
this world of viruses in the soil that we absolutely need for our well-being, the world of bacteria also that we need, and that, that relationship between the soil and the gut that we evolved with is restored. I mean, of course, you can't bring back all kinds of lost organisms overnight, but oh my God, it is just so, it's so important that people should watch some of the recorded stories of how people have restored biodiversity and health to bits of land. So I hope people know the film, The Biggest Little Farm. Do you know oh, that? Yeah, film? yeah, it's beautiful. So good. It's so good. And also about NEP in England, where for me, NEP is about rewilding, and it's not as important and central a message as The Biggest Little Farm, because it doesn't deal head on with food production. But oh my God, does it show what we can do if we help diversification on the land. And within seven, eight years, what can happen? It's just, it's so important that people know. So yes, I mean, another thing about working with food systems is that we evolved for most of our time on this planet as human beings, engage with that activity engaged with the land that nourished us, that fed us, and that fed our bodies as well as our souls. And because we engaged in that in intergenerational communities, there's like another thing that just goes off. It's like a, it's like a, you know, I don't know. It's, it's like suddenly the light comes on when people start engaging together over soil and seeds and land, intergenerationally, in a community collaborative way. There are all kinds of examples now that show for this epidemic of trauma, anxiety, depression, which is ailing this world across boundaries, that combination of coming together in a community fabric, and especially important is the intergenerational part where possible, because that kind of work, like planting a community garden or getting a school garden together or farmers who invite the consumers to come out to help harvest or to help support the farm, all of those activities, are it's a return home. And it's somehow the... the um, energy, the healing, the mental, emotional, spiritual healing that accompanies the land-based healing. And it's so unbelievable that it's also an economic healing, that you're actually making it possible for farmers to be paid a bit more and for the consumers to pay a bit less. So it's, it's a, an amazing win-win-win. The whole local food movement across the world um, but it needs a lot of support. You have so much wisdom in you. This, like there really is like, like, and you cover so many topics in such a short, like with all your answers, like there's so much inherent wisdom in it. And it all kind of boils back to this local, like it really does. Yeah, I, I love, I love you talking about the, the importance of the intergenerational, like so much of modern day society celebrates youth culture and, you know, it's become much more aware the importance of celebrating all aspects of life and all the different, you know, 
ages of our life that I, I loved what Vandana Shiva said in an interview with you where we need to set up universities of grandmother wisdom. And I thought that was amazing. Like I see, yeah. like we're, we're here in Ireland and uh, the, the Irish language is taught in school. And even my children are four, eight and ten. And they already dislike Irish because they're celebrating this global system. And I, I'm back learning Irish and I'm just seeing it myself that how can we celebrate this grandmother wisdom, this sense of place, this sense of the land that we come from and how they're all different as opposed to this global pop culture. Yeah, but. Again, so many things to say about that because you were saying earlier also about the monoculture and how it's, you know, it's both the monoculture in our gut, it's the monoculture in human society. And essentially, the dominant economic system pushes monoculture at every level. Monoculture is rejecting and destroying the fundamental principle of life that is diversity. Every single thing that lives is diverse, is unique. Every child, every earthworm, every leaf, and not only the magic of each and every one of those individual entities being unique, but they are constantly changing. And they're changing in an interconnected dance of connection, a web of relationship. So this complex wealth of life is being destroyed by this economy. It's deadly, it's anti-life. And where we have to look, you know, in, in, well, I would argue, having learned most of what I've learned from indigenous culture, that one of the best places we can study to understand human health, both physical and mental, is to study those indigenous cultures, many of which don't exist anymore, but there's a lot of evidence from the early reports of people who lived in those cultures. There's reams of knowledge. We've actually put a lot together in our organization. And there, what you'll find is one of the fundamentals of all of this, never in our whole evolution did children get segregated into a monoculture and spend their whole day with just the same age group. That is already a disaster. We should do everything we can to change those schools. We should do everything we can as parents to make sure that this idea, oh, they need to play with children the same age, gets absolutely thrown out. We should be doing everything we can to encourage play and interaction between age groups. What I saw in traditional culture is that when you're surrounded you know, by people between one and 80 or 90, you have completely different relationships. The one-year-old actually wants to emulate the three-year-old. The three-year-old already naturally reaches out a hand to help the one-year-old walk, naturally. What you find when you put uh, 30 one-year-olds in a, in a nursery or something is elbows and just you're creating competition from birth. When you pay attention to rejecting that monoculture, bringing in the diversity of ages, you are already making a huge improvement. That's an amazing Inch link. I've, I've never, I've never, I, I, I lo can, can I tell one little tiny little story? Like we, we swim in the sea at sunrise every day. And, you know, we grew up in one of these monoculture education systems where all our friends yeah. were the same age. And true yeah. swimming in the sea, 
there's a group that is a community that's formed and we swim every day at sunrise and the group has it's very diverse in ages you could have like yesterday there was jasper who's 17 and this hugo who's 25 something like that and then up to linda and detty were in their 70s and it's very diverse yeah. and very interesting and i find it one of the most enriching groups that I'm a part of just because there is that diversity it it helps me empathize with different age groups and helps me become a little bit more less monoculture in my thinking I believe Uh, uh, on that topic on that topic could you talk more about like because that education piece is fascinating because I've never really thought of about it in terms with the monoculture lens of kind of going well here's a system that just encourages it like what was it before it was like because we're any it was probably in small little villages where it was, there was one little room and you taught all the people from the village. Was that more like it? No, no. You see, I mean, before, and this, I got to live in that. I got to live in a place where the school wasn't there. And that's in most parts of the world, you would have to go back hundred. But, you know, because of slavery and colonialism, a lot of times we think when we see an African or Indian village that we're seeing tradition, we're not. And I, I think it's important for people to realize that, to understand that the traditional was so much better than we believe. And it doesn't mean that every traditional culture was perfect, that there was never any violence, that, you know. But I'm pretty convinced that most cultures that were allowed to develop in their own way, with their own land, to evolve in that deep interconnected way, for sure, Never ever did they segregate into these monocultures, for sure. Because what happened is, and what I lived with, was seeing how the children actually wanted to emulate the older people. They wanted to emulate even the elders. So you were learning and teaching your whole life. And so when you were even 80 or 90, you were still really useful because the perfect marriage is the baby and the great great grandparents. And by the way, most people knew seven generations because you're in the middle and then you know your great-grandparents and your great-grandchildren. And the, the, the marriage made in heaven is between the oldest and the youngest. They're both toothless, hairless. They both <laughs> can't walk properly. They can't walk properly. And so they go hand in hand, you know, seeing them hand in hand walking along and and, you know, they're both slow. They don't even speak that well because they're, you know, so they're getting older and they, they eat more slowly, everything. They're both, you know, like liquid. And it's amazing <laughs> how much they have in common. I love so that, that. I'm so glad you do. I do. My, my I'm son, so glad. My, my son Ned is four and probably his best friend is Siobhan and Shiv is in her 60s and literally oh. Ned goes and sleeps in Shiv's house once a week he asks for Shiv oh. all the time it's literally like oh. in, a, in, a, in a different type of way they're best friends like, I, I, oh, I mean that great. from Ned and it's so beautiful and he just adores her wonderful and it's so great for her you know it's just because also in this situation another part of it is there were no time pressures So things operated at the speed for them. They could operate at their speed. There was, I was amazed that even in the harvest, when you really needed to get crops in because you could have snow, it could destroy the crop. It was just so relaxed. Never that machine-like speed. And so that's another part of it. There's a scale and there's a pace that's required for caring 
enjoyable, loving relationships. It takes time to care. It takes time to, you know, to respect whether it's that animal or that tree. And when you're picking the apples, you pick the ripe ones and not the, not the, the ones that aren't ripe. And I know this can sound very romantic, very uh, idyllic, but I guess I do want to say it is very idyllic and the extent to which we should realize that on a crowded planet, we have an overabundance of eyes and hands to do things from growing the food, from caring for the chicken, from building the houses, from repairing shoes, repairing clothes. If we would be allowed to move away from production for the masses using corporate machines of investment and giant technological systems to allow people to produce and repair most of the things they need, including you know, food, clothing, shelter, we would be in a much happier, healthier world. And I, I'm, you know, I'm quite afraid to say that in some settings because, but if I could just tell you that, you know, living in a culture where the houses were made of the stone, the mud, and the wood of the region, and we're building a house with something where children could help. I mean, it was almost literally like playing with mud pies. They had these. We saw it in the film, maybe, you know, these wooden molds and you put mud in it and you let them dry in the sun and then you build your house with it. And there's nothing toxic. And, and they stand for hundreds of years. And even in Sweden, where I grew up, a lot of the old buildings are actually sun-dried brick. They're not fired brick. And now we have a system of blindness, of regulations that forbid that kind of architecture. So it can sound unrealistic what I'm saying, uh, and you know, to talk about using natural materials and more artisan production. But please remember that again and again you're going to hear that the biggest problem is overpopulation, and there are too many people. No, and then we have well-intentioned economists like I probably shouldn't name them, but anyway, some of them very well-known and quite well-intentioned economists. They believe we need more technology to create jobs. And you see, again, I just want to ask people to please just step back and think for a minute, what are they saying? Technology relieves people of work. How can we need more technologies to create work? If we could just be willing to use common sense and step back and think for a bit, we might realize that for many, many things, we would be much better off moving away from technological mega systems to, yes, using certain tools and technologies that really enhance and alleviate some of the hard work. There are many tools and, and even small machines that could make it easier to do the farming, for instance. And, and we're not expecting everyone to be growing food. You need to have a balance between the city and the country. But one of my favorite farmers in Japan, he's got a five-acre farm, and where he's got such a diversity of products, including making enough biodiesel for his little tractor. So biodiesel at that scale is absolutely fine. It's when it goes into the global market, into a corporate system, it's a disaster. 
and you know replacing agricultural land and taking food out of people's mouths to to drive machinery that we don't need but i'm talking i'm talking too much i should let you talk you're amazing it's you're wonderful like, to listen like to like i find I, I just want to sit and listen like like it really is like what, a, can you just one, summarize what, so, can, so, can, no like what, one thing that really rings through to me is that a lot of the the problems of this globalized system we live from, we're, we're currently experiencing, kind of stem from a disconnection of ourself, disconnection from the land and disconnection from our community. So in essence, like the solution, as you suggested there is, you know, not necessarily to remove technology, but to kind of use our hands, to get our hands in the earth, to kind of help one another, share more multi-generational friendships where we're friends with older people, we're friends with younger people, and we're really learning and being more biodiverse in our worldviews too. But, that, but that, I don't think that's enough because the current economic model has us all running so fast, like it yeah. does. Like, and, and I don't know how we stop running because... We see it ourselves where we're identical twins that are, have always been competitive. So like we're products of this culture that's like just has us running and it's hard to slow down. Like it's hard to kind of believe that, you know, the ground will hold you. And, you know, you, you, there's so much conditioning there that we need more and bigger. And I need, geez, I need a holiday or I need this or I need that. And essentially all you need is your dinner and someone to kind of hold your hand and have a laugh with. Yeah, but again... It's, it is complex, what I'm trying to say, because it's very important that we realize that people running faster and faster, as they are throughout the world, isn't a personal choice. We need to understand that this mega system is a type of, a type of imprisonment that's keeping us all running faster and faster. And, and what it's doing, it's keeping us, because of the speed, from caring deeply enough and paying enough attention to ourselves, to others, to the earth, to life. So what I'm very keen is to do is to encourage people neither blame themselves nor to blame the other, nor to point the finger. I really so wish before, you know, before I die, you know, I figure I have another 10, maybe 20 years and I would just so hope that we wake up to just looking at that bigger picture, which is the biggest system that has essentially imprisoned us and kept us running faster and faster. And as we're running faster and faster, we're becoming more and more disconnected internally. We're becoming more and more disconnected from others and from nature, from the land. Now, at the same time, we can now stop to study people who have chosen to step off that rat race and to say, well, I actually, I just don't want to do it anymore. I've been to the big city. I've followed all this. I've been told to be successful in this way. I've been told I've got to be beautiful. I've got to be rich. I've got to be so clever. But maybe I just want to be me. Maybe I want to be just somebody with some problems, maybe I can be vulnerable and honest that I'm not perfect and connect, deeply connect to people. Now there is a counter current going on where people are doing that. And they're doing it, especially now after COVID. There are many examples of people who had been in that much faster rat race who through COVID were forced to slow down. And there was a lot of 
amazing coming together of the extended family. I can't tell you how many people I know my sort of age who were suddenly living with their grandchildren and even great-grandchildren and just loving it. So there is a way that there's a deep knowing in our souls and bodies what we need, what we want. And it's sort of starting to happen. Yeah, like I've never heard that phrase of we're prisoners, like we are essentially prisoners of this mass system. Like it's such an amazing analogy because like I see it in myself, even like we have a, an incredibly fortunate life, but we're running so quick and we have been for 30 years. And, and like you're kind of going, oh, well, I'm, I'm going to get a break soon. Like next week I'll get a break. But this week I'll just keep on running, keep on running. So, yeah. so like, and I, I loved that. I loved that the analogy you gave, where you saw the farmers, and there was a, they were at harvest, and there was snow coming in, and yet they didn't have that mechanistic, that machine-like intensity. They could still, and I think so I much of modern-day city urban life, it's fueled with coffee and stimulants because there's a pulse of the city. And then when you go out in the nature, or say you go out suddenly out to nature, suddenly it's like. I'm just going to just calm down. And that's that's, I think, our natural rhythm is the rhythm of nature, that gentle, that more sense of flow. Can, can I ask a question? So what are three practical things? Because for anyone we've, listening, we've talked about everything, like we've covered it all. We've solved it all, solved it all that I'm going to take the rest of the day off. But, <laughs> but what are three what are three practical, tangible things? Because, you know, there's this massive system that needs to kind of change. But then as individuals, we're told, well, buy locally. But you know, it's it's hard to yeah. Yeah, but actually, I I like to uh, uh, you know ask people to find things. I like to ask them number one to connect with some like-minded people. To connect with the idea of rethinking some basic assumptions, and the whole idea is that this part that I'm suggesting is that they're going to sit down together to look at how they might improve their own lives and the whole life of the planet. So it's a very big picture ask. And in order to get there, you have to do some rethinking. You have to question some basic assumptions about why things are going so wrong, what is you know, keeping us from just seeing the big picture. So it takes a little while to do away with some assumptions about it's all innate human greed, it's overpopulation. It's um, always been like this, and, and we're actually more peaceful, we're more happy now than we used to be. So I ask people first, connect, and then rethink, and then being willing to resist as well as renew. And resisting then comes out of having understood this bigger picture, you're gonna be willing to say no to a path into the future that keeps taking us away from our connections to ourselves, to others, and to nature. And so with clarity, you'll be able to say no and perhaps collectively resist a new development that is taking things in that direction. And the renewal is about that reweaving of deeper connections. And there, we are urging people as part of the rethinking to not only look at the problems of the dominant, globalizing, competitive, over-masculine, over-competitive, unnatural, monocultural, speedy, competitive system, and to look at what is a system 
that is more feminine, that is more natural, that helps us slow down, that helps us care for ourselves and for others and the earth. So there we will have greater clarity about what to resist and what to renew. And in the renewal part, which is systemically about rebuilding experiential, experientially based knowledge systems based on closer connections, more human scale, the local. With that local, there is a lot that you can right away probably connect to in your area, wherever you are, even if you're living in Paris or in London or Beijing. Beijing, I met the first you know, community-supported agriculture farmer who has this um, farm called Little Donkey Farm. You know, and it's just like this beautiful diamond and a sort of magnet in a very polluted, very, very big city. But anyway, so we, so we then also urge people to be sure to celebrate, to celebrate life and to celebrate it also with a knowledge of what's important in life. And a lot of that comes back then to the way we always celebrate it traditionally, over food, with song, dance, music, intergenerational, participatory culture. We, we can be creative as part of a participatory process rather than supporting a culture which is becoming more and more commercial, more and more distance, where the global star, you know, is paid a million a minute and everybody's just a passive spectator. As you start getting closer, so the spectator and the performer actually are part of the same community or more on a scale where there's a relationship, you get a completely different type of cultural creativity. So uh, <laughs> I guess at another level, so I'm saying, you know, connect, rethink, resist, renew, and celebrate. At another level, I would say what you can do right now is to connect to or help start localization initiatives. And very importantly, also practice what I call big picture activism. Please help to get this bigger picture out so that even if you're living in Dublin or if you're living in wherever, there is a need to get more people aware of the fact that the dominant system is this type of anti-life prison. And it's destroying our democracy. It's destroying everything we care about, everything that most people care about. So let's not keep supporting that system through our ignorance. We don't have to demonize anyone. We don't have to act in anger, just clarity. So big picture activism is about getting that message out so that even in your town, you can help get much more, you know, sort of traction, more people helping to build a new farmer's market, more people. I want to see, I've helped to start farmer's markets all over the world. But one of the things I haven't succeeded in doing is to start local schemes for monitoring. We need local labeling because we can, in a more, in a smaller district, we can monitor how much, you know, essentially help farmers shift away from chemical and toxic practices 
towards more diversified, healthy practices without the expense of a national organic label, which has also become meaningless. It's been watered down and destroyed by big business. So we need local monitoring. We need more people engaged. We need more people who are willing to create the projects where the old and the young can come together. And there are lots of things happening in that, in that way. But the clarity of which projects are really going to move us systemically towards healing, spiritual, physical, personal, as well as social and ecological and even economic healing. There is this win, 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 win strategy that you can engage in. So raise awareness about that strategy so more people will join you and raise awareness about that win-win-win-win-win strategy so that we can build a movement that will insist that our governments will pursue our interests, will actually represent us rather than pretending to represent us while representing wealth creation at a global level. You, like, like, you're just... Unbel- like I'd never heard you are like things articulated how you just have in the last 50 minutes like really like you've enlightened me to things which I've tr- been trying to get put my finger on like that idea that we're kind of it, it like it's been in so many movies we're slaves to the machine and in a yeah. sense we are puppets within this system and this environment yeah. that just has us running and it's yeah. you know it's not feeding ourselves it's not you know, we're not, it's not enriching us or the diversity in any sense. And, and, and what are, so if people want to learn more about this, how do they learn, how do we learn you, more about you it? You have I'm, a world localization day. I wonder if you could talk briefly about that, Alela. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I'm so bad about that. I should have brought it in. I never promote our stuff enough. Oh, well, so, it's, yeah. it's on June 14th to 20th, isn't it? And you've some amazing yeah, speakers. Yeah. I will, will I do it for you if you're not so good at doing it? You've Noam Chomsky, you've Johan Harry, you've Russell Brand, you've Sarah Kumar as someone who I've admired for years, oh, a great oh, character. Um, and that it's, uh, it sends, I'll, I'll allow you talk now, sorry. All right. Well, we have this year, especially, we're working with 50 different organizations in 26 countries now. It'll probably be more than that on six continents, and all around the world, they're organizing events, again, to raise awareness about localization as a strategy for personal and planetary healing. And they're doing online events and wherever they can also face-to-face live events. So a lot of that will be um, featured in a program that we have online from the 14th to the 20th. a little bit, it's what our problem is that we're trying to reach out globally. And so even the dates become problematic. You can't imagine how much trouble we had even deciding how to spell localization because in America it's spelled with a Z, in England and Australia with an S. So we have, we're a tiny organization, but we're trying to reach out globally because we really believe and we're seeing it. It's really lovely to see that when different parts of the world start seeing, wow, this is happening on the other side of the world. It's happening in so-called poor countries and rich countries. It's incredibly inspiring and empowering. So that's what we're doing, highlighting these various projects. And I managed to get some very influential people like Noam Chomsky, like the Dalai Lama, like Jane Goodall to support this and to put their voice to it. 
And this year, we you know, now have a new, also a new message from Naomi Klein and from some other well-known people. But we're also having eight webinars with some of our leaders from around the world um, who are engaged both practically and intellectually in promoting this movement. Um, we also have, if you look at localfutures.org website, we are like a, a website where you could get a PhD in localization. We are, <laughs> the, we are the pioneers of localization worldwide, for sure. And we have lots of evidence for that even have, having been approached by U.S. intelligence years ago to brief them on what is localization. But it's sort of um, definitely a movement that's growing, but we need to do enough study and rethinking so that we don't support the sort of pseudo-local and so that we don't either fall into the sort of fundamentalist camp of thinking, oh, aren't we great? We're, you know, online food and that's all there is to it. This is a, a joint effort. It's a changing the I to a we. And it's about, it's just as importantly about being able to feel valued for who we are as real imperfect people and moving away from a show-off culture where we never feel that people really know us. There's a very deep healing dimension to the coming together in closer relationships, intergenerational, more connected, more feminine, if you like, too. We were allowed to feel and see and listen in a deeper way. We all long for that. We all long to be seen, heard, and valued for who we are. When we do that within the shaping of a human culture, it's wonderful. When we go into a global consumer culture and think that we're going to be valued and heard within that, that's when we go crazy because we're competing globally in a monocultural, deadly, commercial, speedy system where we can spend our life trying to be influencers, trying to get likes in the social media, trying to become famous, trying to become rich. And we have some very intelligent voices, including Russell Brand, who has become quite a friend. He, he quoted me quite a lot in his book, Revolution, and he's become more and more on board. So he will testify, you know, a lot of young people have read him talk about how he longed to be that famous man who could seduce every beautiful woman and be a Hollywood star, and how empty and, and sad it was, and how he became addicted and almost destroyed his life. And the way he came back is essentially localization it's what happens with really effective therapies for addiction everything from alcohol addiction to drug addiction to sex addiction violence against women prisoners who have never known anything but hardship and anger the healing power is the circle community building sharing the journey of change coming together to transform 
jointly, not in isolation. So that's what localization you, can you, offer. You, you are officially my new hero. Genuinely, oh. <laughs> I, I mean that. Like, I bow down. You, Wow. Oh, thank you. It's so wonderful, wonderful to meet you. And I really hope we can keep collaborating. I'd and, love to. Uh, share ideas. Well, I'm, yeah. I'm going to get my PhD in localization from your website. Okay. I, genuinely, <laughs> I, I am a super fan. I am. Oh, I'm, I'm going out with it. Oh, thank You're you. amazing. Thank, thank you so oh, much for taking the time, Alina. Really, it's been thank it's you. been eye opening. Your wonderful. work is incredible. Oh, like oh, wow. Thank you. I'm sure you tell everybody that. No, no, I genuinely don't. don't. No, no, I haven't been this lit. Like, like, wow! You've just you're, and we we've we've interviewed Zach Bush. We've interviewed Russell, Russell Brand. Brand. We've interviewed really? different people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Ah. We'd be friends with Russell. Ah. I'd be friends with Zach yeah. too. Both wonderful humans. Wow! Oh, well, that's great. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I look forward to your yeah. event. I'm definitely going to take part in your World Localization Day events. Oh. Great, thank you. And yeah, I'm sure there are other ways. Also, you should be part of the whole WLD network. We have to be members of that. Great, well, we'd love to. We're, we're on sure board. We can do more stuff together. Okay. Brilliant. Yeah, really you're brilliant. Thank you, Alina. You, you, you must have had a good mother. Did you have good grandparents too? Yeah, oh, wonderful. Oh, we had an incredible granny. She was amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. she was amazing. My, my daughter is named after our grandmother, who we were really close to. Well, you know, I really, I swear with Russell also that why he's got that feminine side that allows him to go deeper. I believe because he had that good relationship with his mother. My sort of informal study around in the Western world is that, especially those who had at least that, but also even good grandparents or one granny makes such a huge difference. And that's why it's so important that we try to rebuild that. We can't always do it now with our blood relatives, but we can start making those bridges even with people in our around us. And they don't necessarily have to be the immediate blood family. They don't necessarily have to be neighbors, but like-minded individuals who are beginning to understand the importance of connection, of that deeper connection and collaboration. And there's so much we could do, you know, to just reduce that time pressure if we can try. I'm not doing it. I right now I'm running faster than ever myself because, you know, a lot of us, I think, are feeling the pressure of the negative systemic change and we really want to do something and the technologies are making it possible to multitask you know, have messages coming in on the phone as well as on the computer and all this. And to some extent, we need to do that. But we need to be sure that we don't do it all the time. We've got to be sure that we start at least part of the day or part of the year, taste that life that is slower and that is richer. We can start building the future part-time while we stay in the real world as well. I yeah, like that. Beautiful. Anyway, beautiful. I love you so much. Thank for you, Helena. You're, you're divine. Thanks, Helena. Thank you're you so divine. much. Thank you. Well, you're absolutely adorable. Thank you. Till next time. Cheers. Cheers. Bye bye. Loads of love. Loads of love. Thank yeah. you. Bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. 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 
I'm officially Helena's number one fan. It's Hello, official. number one fan, David. Yeah, uh, that was just awakening, enlightening, and so inspiring in so many ways. And I really, I really mean that with in all sincerity. I'm not joking. I really loved her the way she spoke about so many things. And one thing that really stood out was the importance of multi-generational friendships and multi-generational societies. And that really, really hit the core of me. It also reminded me of one of my favorite books that I ever read called Small is Beautiful by E.F. Schumacher. And in it, it was a chapter called Buddhist Economics. And it talks about the importance of having, working with our hands and the importance of finding work that's of meaning. And I thought what she spoke about, you know, getting our hands in the ground and starting working with our hands. Well, she kind of articulated how, you know, so many of society's modern ills, like the allure of fame and money and sex and greed and and success and all the, like the allure of these, which we're all kind of conditioned to, how we have to kind of fight against this whole machine that's created this and not so much fight against it, but... But the the main message I got, the antidote to all... What Dave just mentioned there is a connection to ourselves, connection to nature and connection to the other humans that are in our community. Yeah, I don't, I don't know exactly what the answer is, but wow. I hope you got as much out of that as I did. And this is the first episode in our community series, which has been really, I've learned so much in this. There's so many this. wonderful uh, guests. I don't know. If yeah. I, well, can I, when I go through yeah. them? Yeah, let's go through them. Okay. Yeah, a few right. of them. Bruce Perry talking about tribes, which is amazing. He lived with loads of indigenous tribes. He was a legend. I love Bruce Dan Perry. Dan Buettner, who's the Blue Zones man. What a dude. Rob Hopkins, legend. Oh, I Absolute love Rob Hopkins. Legend. We had, we had one of the most fun conversations with Rob Hopkins. There's loads more to come. Community is a, sec- is a whole topic that just resonates with our core and it's something that we adore almost in essence we're talking about like how we're going to rebuild like our skill sets we We, the collective we not the I the greater we the global we are collectively going to try to you know turn things around anyway we're rambling now thanks Mill, for listening we love you we appreciate you let us know on social media what you thought of this we know the audio wasn't as good as uh, some of the other ones so that kind of feedback we're less interested in. But uh, <laughs> yeah, thanks, Emil, and sending loads of love and uh, wishing you a wonderful day. Bye. Bye.